This is episode 17 of the Rebel Matters podcast and this week I sat down with Dan Murphy from the band Hermitage Green who also runs Global Village Tours which is a very unique travel company that organises trips to places like North Korea and other spots that you wouldn't normally find hanging up in your local travel agent window. During this episode we discussed the creative process, travel, music and how to make it in the notoriously hard music industry as well. I think as the episodes are going by that we're finding a style that fits the podcast and it seems that they're coming becoming more and more conversational as the episodes go by. This is definitely the most conversational type of episode that we've had so far. So you can let me know what you think about it through Twitter or Facebook. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the chats with Dan Murphy. Where would be a good place to start? Have we started? It started. It's on. (laughs) It's on. (laughs) And greeted me outside his his beautiful gym today. That's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? A beautiful gym. It is a beautiful gym. And Anna greeted me with a, a, a fucking bum bag. I'm bringing bum bags back. He's single-handedly starting a revolution. Bum bags for life. So functional, man. Tactic, tactical exterior pocket. What have you for- got in your pouch? <laughs> <laughs> what's in there? Loads of change. A man never tells what's know. in his bum bag. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a rude question. <laughs> Anyway, I don't even know why I'm after bringing you here. What do we want to talk about? <laughs> I'd like to ask you about the trips you do abroad to all the mad places. How did that come about? Uh, so I've, I have a travel company called Global Village Tours and I started it about this time three years ago. And basically I was living with a mate of mine, Dave, uh, about five years ago in Limerick and he he won a trip to North Korea on Facebook, as you do. And uh, he went off to North Korea and with this company that arranged tours. They're based in China. And he got on really well to the director of the company. And then he came back and he was like, why don't we roll this out in Ireland? Where let's give people who are interested in unusual traveling experience a, a full travel package where everything's organized. It's affordable. And this is your kind of a one-stop shop to take you to places like North Korea, Iraq, Chernobyl, Iran, Cuba, Tibet. Uh, I'm going to Turkmenistan in September. And yeah, it's it's really cool output to have uh, as a parallel to, to the band, like as a parallel to playing music for a living. I've learned loads from it. It's challenging. And uh, and I get to travel as well, which is amazing. Well, have you been to all those places? Eh? Not all of them. I try. I get on about one trip a year. Um, it's okay if I take those off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was in Chernobyl last year. This time, two years ago, I was in North Korea. I'm doing Turkmenistan in September, and they're just the type of experiences where, like, you know yourself. Like, there's two types of traveling where you know, I'm going to Portugal on Sunday with my parents, where I will sit on a beach and I'll eat shit and drink pints with my parents for five days and that's that's I'll be rested when I get back but I won't remember a day of that trip in two years time whereas you have another type of traveling there where you're chucking yourself into this totally unfamiliar often uncomfortable environment and it challenges your misconceptions that you have about life in other places and your challenges your ideas of what you're what you think you're capable of and it's it can be hard work it can be scary it can be an adventure but it's you get this kind of a a sense of you get a huge you give yourself a huge pat on the back when you get back and you remember every it's something about those trips they're very they leave a lasting impression 
Like what North Korea is it like? Is it the way it, we, the impression that we get from North Korea is that what it's like when you're over there? It's all kind of closed off, manufactured sort of experiences and uh, it's censored. It is, is it? in many ways. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> they know what they want you to see over there. Like, did you meet any North Koreans? Like, you yeah, be friends on North Koreans. We do, and that's one of the the really nice things about. You know, we get asked this question a lot. Like, do how do you feel about bringing money into this regime, this horribly uh, oppressive military regime? And the kind answer that people usually give in, in travel companies like ours, well, you know, it's a poor economy, and we're bringing money in there. But is it a is that is that true? Is it like a really oppressive regime, or is it just the impression that we get off it? It's it's a military dictatorship. So, um. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm in trouble for saying that because, you know, I work with these countries, but, uh, it's, it's harsh enough. Um, but aside from that, what, what we're seeing happening is if you talk to any of the, the experts on North Korean politics or, or Korean society, they'll say that if change comes, when it comes, it will most likely come through social change first. So, uh, we saw that happen with Cuba and we've, we've seen, as opposed to this horribly violent war where people are going in blowing the place up, we're hoping that won't happen. Um, so what will most likely occur is social change that start from the ground up where people become a little bit more aware of what's going on and it slowly kind of waters down this uh, segregation between them and the rest of the world. And we've seen that happen <clears throat> in the five years that we've been working and we've been going into the country. So from Dave's first trip in there, he said the locals in the streets would, they'd look at the ground as they walk past you. They were terrified. And that wasn't like a hatred of the West. It was they're terrified. They're, they're frightened of Westerners. And we've seen that completely being watered down over the last few years where you're starting to get internet into, at least in Pyongyang and some of the more developed places. There's a good bit more money in there. And it's, the, the barriers are slowly been broken down where their misconceptions are being rewritten. And a lot of our own as well. I was surprised in many, many ways about how much of a, a beautiful country it is. And the people are some of the nicest, warmest people you'll meet anywhere in the world. And they've been victim to a, a very unfair past. Um, but how do you meet regular people? Are they just on the street or they can work on a shop? Yeah, there was a couple of cool things we got to do now that were up until recently were totally forbidden. Where You usually have to pay for everything in US dollars. And one of the things they let us do is they brought us to a big department store, like uh, like uh, Harrods, Harrods in Pyongyang. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were allowed to actually get North Korean currency and go shopping for groceries, basically. We were just buying like rice wine and uh, packets of potatoes and stuff. But it's a totally, it's about as authentic a Korean experience as you'd get in a place like that. And we were walking around with families and normal people now they're middle class and they're if you're in Pyongyang you tend to be a little bit more elite as you go rural it gets poorer and so that was you're rubbing shoulders with these people you without trying to be too invasive you do try and start up a conversation where you can and they're they're very curious and open to the west and one of the things that like I often tell this story about um it, it just kind of sums up the North Korean experiences we had a 
so you have guides everywhere you go. You have government guides, and I like to make sure you go in the right place and things like yeah. that. Yeah, and though you could even look at that as kind of sinister, or you could look at it just as them being hospitable and making sure that everything goes well and that you see that their country is really <laughs> nice. And our main guide was uh, her name is Miss You. And she was, she was about my age, like 27 or 28. And she had a master's in sociology. She had impeccable English. She was really funny. She was really witty. And she, it was nothing I, I couldn't talk to her about that I didn't feel like this girl isn't on the same page, or is on this, like, she was always on the same page as me, was what I'm trying to say. Um, and then one, one morning I got up and we were coming down to breakfast and I was wearing this t-shirt with a picture of uh, Muhammad Ali and Elvis Presley on it. And she said, who are these people? And I said, well, that's Elvis Presley and that's Muhammad Ali. And she said, oh, uh, Bollywood. And I said, no, no, no. They're two of the biggest cultural icons in, in Western pop culture. And there's something fascinating about that for, for this woman <coughs> who had a sociology master's and in, in every other way was totally informed, but totally isolated about sounds like a class t-shirt as well yeah <laughs> it is <laughs> um, and that kind of sums up the whole experience and how partitioned they are you know, I was in a, over in Palestine in March I felt like we were talking about this earlier but like when I came back I was depressed out of my head because of the level of oppression over there and yeah. how severe everything was and in a lot of ways like lack of hope and a, when you're out there, you're just moving around and meeting people and stuff, so you didn't yeah. really get a chance to process it or sit down and think about it for any length of time. When I came back and I sat down by myself, I was like, holy crap, I was, I was pretty useless for a couple of weeks after that in terms of productivity and things. Did that? Do you find that? Or? I, I do, and I would say that's one of the things that's enormously important about traveling is that it just wedges everything else back into perspective where it's very important for us as people in a middle class first world country to see poverty and and know that there is poverty outside of everything we take for granted and it definitely keeps everything in perspective and it gives you a, a, a broader understanding of what it means to be alive and what it means to be privileged which we we are and we should never fucking forget that uh, and and the other thing is like i was reminded there of something you said uh i was traveling in india a couple of years ago and India is one of my favorite countries in the world, but it's it's really really poor. And uh, I went to I, I spent a couple of weeks in a, in a music school in Calcutta, which is a very poor city. And then I went to Varanasi, which is this city in the northeast. It's the Hindu capital of the world, and that place freaked me out. And it was just really intense. It's where Hin- Hindus flock there from all over the world to burn their dead in public on the banks of the Ganges or to, to, to bathe in this holy river, the, the river Ganges. And it's intense and there's life and death and shit and piss and it's everything. It's the most unapologetically indiscreet place in the world. It's a, an assault of the senses. And I saw a lot of poverty there, like just people lying naked in the streets and dying in the streets. And that really hit home. And... I, about a week later, I went up, up further north to the Himalayas, up to this national park, and I was talking to this uh, a young tour guide that we had. It was about my age, and he was really well-educated, and I was trying to ask him, how do you... Uh, is it difficult to live side by side with such poverty? How do you... Um, how do you kind of switch off from that stuff and not not take it all in and be affected by it? And he said something that was very interesting. Um, 
he said, I'm a Hindu. And he said, we believe in karma and we believe in reincarnation. So I was always taught growing up that if someone is poor and they're dying in the streets, that's because, you know, they were bad in their last life. And that's, that's the balance of life. And now I don't agree with that. <laughs> there was something sad about that, that that's the way that's like their mechanism for dealing with that struggle. Um, it's not nice, but it was really interesting to mm. get that perspective and, and see that that's almost like how they've, how they've dealt with being around that kind of struggle all the time. You can see that contrast in Palestine as well. Can you, you? could be sitting there in, say, Jerusalem, for example, and you'll see really old houses. Like the way that you imagine, if you imagine like a, a book about the kids' book about the Bible, the way the houses are like that, look kind of like clay looking houses and that yeah. kind of, those kind of colours. And then you just turn around and there'll be like Beverly Hills settlement, massive brand new places there. And oh, it's such, it's so close to get, so close together. Yeah. It's like basically they're just exactly in, intermingled with each other. There was mm. such a separation between the settlers who are protected by the Israeli soldiers and who have all the rights. So they, they, in, in certain places they can carry around M16s on their, on their shoulder. They're just just regular citizens, and then the Palestinians need a, a they need a, like a, a license for everything. Yeah, there's I don't know there's like sixty different types of permits you have to have, food permit to go on a certain road, permit to carry tools for your farm, permit to go farming, yeah, permit to get through a, a, a checkpoint or something like that. There, it's, it's absolute madness. It's, it's hard to process that when it's so close together. When it's they're they're side by side, it is it's such a contrast. I've often said one of the things I love about Ireland is. It's a very middle class country in that, you know, I, I could be wrong in saying this, but like we, we have poverty. We have a huge homelessness problem. But across the board, I think our, our poverty levels are, are lower than, than a lot of other European countries. We're, and we don't have crazy wealth as well. We're kind of middle class as a country. Now, I could be wrong in saying that. That's the impression I get. Well, I don't know. That. I mean, obviously, the, the area that, that, that I come from in West Belfast is they've got one of the highest poverty rates for child poverty does it and, uh, like if you look at the actually read a constituency comport, report from 2016 about west belfast as a constituency it was one i think there's maybe 17 in the north of ireland and we were basically the highest on everything really highest on like uh death rates from illness highest on uh, like say with the lowest life expectancy is that on a european level or uh, that was that was based on the english all of the whole of england but okay. it is quite high i think it's high i know i know what you're saying but at the end at the same time i think there are pockets in ireland that really suffer like, absolutely what i was going to draw a comparison to was i spent a summer in london a couple of years ago and like at least ireland or the southwest of ireland anyways which is really all i can talk about because that's where i grew up um you don't have huge extremes so poverty is is lower per capita than than it is in in at least some other european cities and we've a large middle class and then we don't have crazy wealth either we don't have people driving around ferries and porsches and i spent the summer in london when i was like 23 and you're surrounded by Crazy wealth. Like Hampstead? We were in Hampstead? Uh, Hampstead Heath? I was living in Islington, but I, I know Hampstead. Uh, yeah. There are a few weeks ago. It was like, for, like le- uh, what do you call them? Uh, Teslas everywhere? Yeah. It's this, like, uh, in many areas, like, obnoxious levels of wealth and crazy poverty as well. And a lot of homelessness in the city centre. And 
it's this it's when they're side by side if for me if i found it really hard living there and constantly being made feel inadequate about i was totally broke i was doing an internship where i wasn't being paid uh living on fucking microwavable food for a couple of months and because you're surrounded by all this wealth then it kind of compounds this sense of inadequacy and it's not a nice feeling um and then to draw a parallel with like the southwest of Ireland where there's just a little bit more of a it's a level playing field I think it's 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 definitely better for your sense of uh well-being I think or your mental health anyways then there's something else there though I'm not sure if I if I'll even build a kind of frame it properly but think when I think about areas and because I lived in America for like six years think about areas like my Ross or St Mary's Park mm. like they're marginalised areas they are uh, for many like I've boxed in my Ross boxing club since I was 15 and uh, I I will say like the government has been trying to do what it can for those areas for the last few years the facility the reason I boxed there is because they had a great boxing club which back in those days did receive a lot of money from from the government um in an effort to kind of boost a bit of momentum into those areas and help the kids there and there's a thing called the regeneration project now where they try to move families out of more troubled areas and and break up the kind of anti-social stuff um it has improved but yeah i'd agree with you it's still it's still very disadvantaged it does something to your mental health coming from an area like that like it has to like where you feel like the world is against you like and yeah. it might not be wrong to say that sometimes the world is against you if you're from an area like that yeah very much um i think ireland is kind of a, per, a, a partitioned society uh in many ways where like i used to work as a doorman in limerick and if someone had a certain accent which would indicate that they're from a certain area that would be enough to stop them on the door and that's just a horrible Like generally culture. speaking amongst doormen. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying me, but that was a, a thing that was done back then. I don't think it's like that anymore, but that's very much what it was. There was this segregation between the classes. Yeah. And it's horrible. And I don't think you see that in the UK as much. Um, but have you read that book, Chavs? No. There's a really good book called Chavs. I can actually see it from here. It's called. It's by Owen Jones. You can see it sitting over there. On yeah, the, the go on. So actually, really, really, <coughs> that's a really good one. It's about kind of the demonization of the working class. I think we have the same thing in Ireland in that if you grow up in a kind of wealthier area, yeah, you're definitely fed a certain element of fear about the poor area. Yeah, that especially the poor area that's like right adjacent to wherever you're living. Mm. I think anyway. I'm I'm saying that from a per, the perspective of like knowing people who've grown up in wealthy areas who have preconceptions about people who are from like a poor area. Absolutely, and same like drugs and stuff like that really demonized amongst if there's something to do with drugs in a like a poor area yeah it's demonized whereas in the wealthier areas like it's like happy days cocaine like it's everywhere amongst kind of like wealthy i don't know is that is that pr- true but like it seems to be more socially acceptable yeah amongst like the kind of like younger people who are better off and one thing that goes a step further is i think the the segregation of the traveling community in ireland which is it's a fucking mad thing that we're all very familiar with, but when you take a step back from it and look at it, it's this weird, like a parallel society that exists in Ireland that are totally cut off from us. And the way we're conditioned to treat them and to look at them is, it's awful. Like, you know, the fact that a traveler can't go in and get served in a bar because they are a traveler and for no other reason than that is 
very, very strange. And that's normalized. Um, it's funny how you say that actually, because it was actually, I heard sort of from a, I was talking to someone who mentioned that about the, what you just mentioned about people in Limerick going around to the bars and if they had a certain accent. Yeah. I know that exists in yeah. Cork for sure about, about people from the traveling community trying to get in somewhere and the doormen are like really going around each other to say, there's a couple of travelers coming down. Yeah. It's a thing that exists. It is. It's mad when you think about it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Like integration is probably the answer where we, we, we can learn to, to kind of marry the two societies and, and still let travelers maintain what they love about their culture and their history, but find a way to integrate better where they're not so marginalized. I think a lot of the time the people at the top have a fear of people who are very different from them. Yeah. The further away from the top that people are, yeah. I think that the greater the fear is. So the <clears> traveler there is right on the margins of society yeah. and whoever's sitting in the city hall. Is there or, a big traveling community in Belfast? Yeah, there is, but it's like, it's different. I remember, it's funny you say that because I remember the first time I went to Limerick, uh, the first week I was in Limerick in UL, was back in 2003 and I was down on the AstroTurf pitches by the arena and myself and two other fellas were playing hurling and pucking around just and there was about 15 fellas playing football right beside us and yeah. these little traveller kids came down they had three or four of them and took the ball from the lads and the lads just went home Yeah, and that's a thing I think that there was a perception or that the, the fellas who were playing football were afraid of the kids because in case they went off and got the rest of the um, yeah. their their cousins or whatever their friends and stuff to come down and start trouble, <clears throat> but in Belfast there are travellers there, but I don't I don't think there's the same there isn't the same level of um, preconceived sort of fear between the travelling community and okay. the regular community. Yeah. Maybe it's because of the fact that we we went through the conflict in the north and people are maybe a bit more streetways or something like that I don't know what it is or, or more compassionate or something maybe towards, yeah. maybe I mean, it's, it goes both ways it's not just people who are unsettled in houses and stuff being mm-hmm. compassionate to the travellers they seem that by and large live hand in hand like I was in at Christmas or, or just sorry just before Halloween myself and a friend of mine when, um, my friend Podrick who I did a podcast with I was friends with one of the travellers we called in to see if he could get some fireworks or if they had any fireworks, but uh, there, there was no problem going in there like at the yeah. time. Um, and then it's funny that on that occasion, one of the kids came over and was like, oh, give me your hurling stick. And like, I don't know, did he have an expectation I was going to hand my hurley over to him, but right. it didn't happen. Like, yeah. But so there are, there are travelers in, in Belfast, same as anywhere else, but I, the only, I think the only comparison I have is when I was in Limerick, and it seemed to be a different sort of dynamic between mm. the travellers and the and the settled community there. Could be wrong there now, but... Yeah, like I've known travellers for most of my life through the boxing club and then through working in bars and it's like any other uh, any other group in society. There's, there's nice people and there, there's not so nice people. And uh, there leaves a culture in the travelling community of like, they're very passionate about boxing and, and fighting. And I think uh, there's a lot of, there's a big fighting culture and that doesn't help uh, their case maybe with like coexisting with, with the middle classes, we'll say, with going out on, on nights out and being in bars. And it's, I've, I've seen 
trailers that I know where like they can make contact with make eye contact with someone across the bar and that's enough to solicit a fight and that doesn't help the case and that's a cultural thing that exists and I think as much as we need to cop on and stop marginalizing the traveling community and stop being as petty as just not letting them into bars and things like that the traveling community probably needs to stand up and accept that like okay maybe it's not acceptable to fight in the streets and let's keep that to the boxing clubs and there needs to be a little bit of a reciprocation there of responsibility of taking responsibility and and, and making progress i have to get someone from the traveling community on the podcast john connors is a great guy um he uh yeah you should have him on man. He's, uh, like john connors he represents something that's just so good about irish people yeah not not talking about traveling people in specific, he represents the traveling community as well. Yeah. But from the bits and pieces that he's had on the TV recently, like, did just, you see the documentary he had about like the history of gypsies in Ireland? No, I didn't see it. And it, like, really fascinating history, man, that goes way back. They have their own language that's known as shelter or kind. And a lot of like slang words. Kind? Kind, yeah. It's yeah. like the Irish and word for speech. It sounds like Irish, but. It's even harder to understand than when I'm listening to you and your brothers talking <laughs> Belfast Irish. It's they speak really fast, and a lot of the words are the same, but it's it's different. Uh, but I've heard that there's like a, a lot of words that we use as slang words came from shelter. So to call a, a girl a bure, that's the kind word for a girl. Um, what are the other ones? I can't remember. There's a lot. There's a lot of crossover, and like a lot of that. In this documentary, he talked about that. There's not many members of the traveling community nowadays that can still speak that language. So it is being lost. And I think it's good to see guys like him making a concerted effort to, to keep that alive because it's a very important part of our history. Yeah, I've seen the speech that he did at the award ceremony that day when he, about the, the movie he made and he got the award and he stood up and basically was like... Could have shit on it, didn't he? He was like... Thanks, all you fuckers, for not supporting me. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I was at um, I was at the premiere of a film in Dublin there last year, and he got an award at the start of it. And he he said something really quirky. He got up and he took the award, and he was like, "Look, uh, acting is a, it's a subjective art form, so this doesn't really mean anything. Like, it's just a couple of people that thought I was the best, but it doesn't really matter." Like, I thought Class. That, was, that was pretty rock and roll. Endorse that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did the band start? Um, good segue. Uh, we started about th- this month, eight years ago. Shit, happy birthday. Uh, yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Eight fucking years. I was I actually living in Limerick. Were you? I think so. It would have been, I suppose. Just, yeah. I was just making the transition to Cork at the time. Mm, um, I've been in Hermitage Green longer than I was in secondary school. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Um, I suppose we've been like five years as a band, as an original outfit where we had quit our jobs and let's said give this a go for a year at a time so that was five years ago and then three years before that we got together as a, a jam session really just playing cover songs and we started playing it in a, in a pub in a dare in july of 2010 um we knew about four or five songs so when we played those we played them again <laughs> <laughs> and again after that and yeah it was very it was as organic and as fucking disorganized as as that really you know, he's come a long way since then. I've kind of seen you at like intervals along yeah. the way. Yeah, it's changed. Like, yeah, um, it had when you're that close to it, it probably doesn't feel like it's they're they're small steps all the time. But uh, we all still 
really enjoy it. Man. I feel yeah. like I feel like with you guys because I've seen you, like I don't see us all the time, but at intervals along the way. And the last time was uh, in the opera house when someone dropped the glass during the. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah. Is that on YouTube? Uh, it's on our Instagram. So we have this a cappella song that we play at the end of the night where we usually do it acoustically where we just stand on the edge of the stage and there's one moment where everything stops and it's just you can hear a pin drop we stop singing and it's just silence and some fucking legend <laughs> <laughs> dropped what sounded like a tray of drinks right at this moment whether they knew it was coming or whether it was just a beautiful it couldn't instance. have been on purpose it yeah. was too well tanned. yeah I think you're right and uh, I mean the whole opera house just erupted into laughing their asses off. but then after that then everyone started singing with you so I thought that was the best because uh, people were singing before that happened but then when, after the, the whole big crash thing and everyone started singing you could yeah. feel it everyone was just like it's like a unified yeah, yeah. <laughs> well that's what I always say like what makes a good gig is we get up on the stage and we do the same thing every night it's us playing a couple of songs but what makes a good gig is where it's like this exchange between the punters and the band it's a reciprocation of an energy or something and they give and you give and you get to this place in the middle where it's like everyone feels like they've gotten their money's worth and we can only do so much to dictate that. It just has to be the vibe in the room and, and the people that turn up and that's something that's special about it that you can't really control it. it just you happens. know what? It's one like thing that really sticks out in my head about Hammer's Green just based on I was because I, I seen one I think I seen your first gig in Dolan's back in the day, like that must have been about seven years ago or something like that. And I remember that you or Barry like I broke a string on the guitar, yeah. but just didn't have someone to, to change the, the strings and stuff. So yeah. had just the gig just stopped and one of you was just there like <laughs> restringing the guitar and the crowd was just sitting there. It was, still, it was still class. It wasn't like, it was still really good, like genuine gig. But then the, la- and the last time at the Opera House, when I left, I was just like from the start to the finish, it wasn't, like just a group of lads just singing songs. It was like an experience from start to beginning. Like saying a flow to it. I had like a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And you were going through. It was like a show. Yeah. More than anything, it's something actually something that I've been thinking about a lot in the in the gym here because people come in for sixty minute sessions to us, and I've been trying to view it the way that I feel like. Say maybe you guys view a show is that from the minute someone walks in the door. How do you like curate that time until yeah. the minute they leave? They leave and make it an an experience that you're you're just basically curating the whole time that they're yeah, in there. Yeah, totally. I feel like you guys have done that. Um, inadvertently, I'd say. Um, you just there's a lot to be said for fucking turning up, man. We work hard. We all work hard in our own different ways, but just being consistent and doing this for eight years and being able to do it in a way that we may piss each other off from now and again, but we none of us hate hates anyone else in the band we all we're all friends first and foremost we trust each other a lot and the fact that we've been able to maintain that core in that we we can still be around each other and we enjoy working together means that it's lasted this long and then all that's left outside of that is just keep turning up and doing it and you will inevitably get better at it the more you do it so to go back to what you said it is a show like we've always prided ourselves on on that in it being entertaining and I don't want to say gimmicky because if you use the word gimmick, it, it implies that it's in some way kind of cheap, like or flippant. But it, you know, a gimmick in the sense of something that's purely thrown in there for entertainment purposes. That like it's not going to be on an album. It's just 
something that's there to kind of just get people going. We love that stuff. And like, we probably all get those influences from different places. For me, it was definitely, <clears throat> I listened to heavy metal music. That was my first language in terms of music. Like I was a teenager and my brother got me into, started with Metallica and then Iron Maiden and heavier stuff then like Sepultura and Pantera. And there's a certain bravado and a theatrics and a, a flamboyancy and a campness with metal music that's fucking brilliant. And it's, no one takes it too seriously. It's over the top. It's mad. And I definitely got some of that theatrics from, from metal music and tried to apply, and Hermit's Green are never going to be a metal band, <laughs> but just try and apply that silly OTT. But I remember one time you did, actually not the last Opera House gig, but the one before that, you went kind of in towards the crowd and we're standing up climbing really, on the seats mm, yeah with yeah. the guitar and the lights were going <laughs> it was class that was yeah. one of my best that was one of my favourite moments from that from that gig I think on the last night I, I went climbing because I, I play Lion's Share uh, without a guitar I started doing that more now which I like because I have my hands free and I get to go walk about and in the opera house I went climbing over the rows like towards people and <laughs> <laughs> I don't think many people do that in a fucking opera house. It's probably sacrilegious to be behaving like that. But yeah, it's, <laughs> look, it's entertaining and it's it's a moment. That's the thing. And it's, you know, if you want to hear us playing the songs, you might as well sit down and listen to the album at home. It's got to be something else there. Mm. A bit of drama and like Darmy's brilliant. Like he's he's the kind of, he's like the, the uh, he gives off a lot of that energy on the stage. He's our drummer and he's just very flamboyant and very out there. He's a real performer. And he, when he, he joined the band, the, the last, he was the last to come on board. And that kind of infected the rest of us then with that. It's bravado. You know, Jeremy and Dara have class kind of, they have uh, a great energy between them and people like that. You know, they resonate with that. I think we always, people can tell by looking at us on a stage that that's just a group of mates that, met each other through music or, or through sport in, in in some other ways. Um but that resonates with people because they can relate to it as opposed to you do see bands up there and they don't have that kind of same cohesion in terms of they don't look like friends or anything. It's just I think that's something that's always stood to us and that we had that organic roots of uh having met sitting around a table in a bar in Limerick playing songs that we that we liked cover songs that we liked and that has kind of stood to us I think down through the years how do you guys keep the creative process going you're on the road busy playing gigs and stuff but you're still producing things that are new how do you keep that going um yeah we just you go through patches now where like we our last release was an EP uh last October and I didn't write anything for I'd say nearly three months where I was just not motivated. Um, didn't I felt like it was too close to the other release where I, I remember think feeling that at Christmas where I was thinking I should probably try and lock myself away and I'll write for a few days. But I don't know. I felt like it was too close to the other stuff and that I'd be writing with this kind of a an influence hanging hanging over me of the stuff we just released. And then as as time goes on, you get you find your motivation again and shit happens to you in life that inspires you to write about whether you get fucked over or you fall in love with someone or whatever it is you need that kind of uh creative fodder as well to build up over time and then with us like at the moment we've just kind of kicked ourselves back into gear so like let's say for the last few months i've been good at writing my own little bits by myself we haven't written together as a band very much and then 
just this week Dara has kind of kicked us into gear where he's been like okay let's organise some creative days and we'll pair up into twos and threes um, and just start the process again basically where you just start writing stuff and they can be interesting days like it can be hard um, it can be pulling in diff- different directions just, it can be as many as two three four or five of us sometimes writing and uh, it's good like I like it Some, when it go when it flows it's great and then other days it can be challenging because there's five different people with different interests and influences with different visions of what they want this piece of music to be and uh, you know what you said there about you things happen in life that can inspire you to write or they get your creative yeah sort of mood going let's say that's obviously a part of the creative process to make yourself put yourself in a position where you're sort of vulnerable so that things can happen yeah so you can make something um <laughs> like go out and try and fall in love with someone and then tell them to just fuck me over there with you man I need another album <laughs> but if you're con- cheat on yeah. me just go on if you're constantly locked in a room trying to just write all the time yeah. those things are never going to happen yeah you have to peel back the scab sometimes and climb into the wound and indulge in the difficulty of whatever this thing might be if it's a, a negative emotion that you're writing about um I, I was, I'm listening to Florence and the Machine's new album at the moment and she has this great lyric and uh, it's the last uh, song on, on the album and, and she says, I've stopped writing about happiness because happiness is a very uneventful affair. And she's basically talking about how no one wants to hear a song about two people sitting on a couch and love watching TV. <laughs> it's like Johnny Cash's song, Man in Black. Yeah, is that what that's about? Basically, the, the reason he, wore, he wears black is because he's singing for like the... The down and out. Yeah. The sad things. And we love that, like, because we can relate to it and everyone can relate to being down and out at some point in their lives. And it's cathartic then to to hear that in music and, and it helps you feel a bit better about whatever you've gone through. And, like, something you said there about, like, the emotional thing. Like Barry was um, saying to me the other day that he was chatting to his, his monster buddies like the lads that he would have played for Munster and he was talking to them about um, writing songs and how, and music and he was like I'm realising for the first time that like these guys have probably never thought about that process or how how you communicate an emotion into a musical expression and uh, we, we kind of we were chatting about it and I was saying how being in a, a having your job where you have to create art that's your job it kind of makes you be you have to be very emotionally in touch with everything that's going on with yourself and with the things around you and maybe it accentuates the emotions then where you're, you're more sensitive to the highs and the lows but it is definitely part and parcel of being of creating stuff you have to be in touch with that I think do you think that in your position you have to be Slightly mad, yeah. I think one thing that we're lucky about, I say this to the lads all the time in the band, we're fairly five level headed guys for musicians. There's no fucking lunatics, there's no spoofers, there's no liars. That's one thing I'm always grateful for. We all have that friend who is telling us the story, and you're going, oh, I, That's bullshit. Like, no. <laughs> 30% true. <Yeah. laughs> And I like I trust those four lads 
with most things I trust I trust them to be honest I trust them as musicians and I think that's because they're all level headed normal people so we're lucky in that sense um, but to answer your question yeah art does come from a fucked up place usually so a lot of the people that we put on a pedestal as being these great artists or, artists or uh, creators of art are often that comes from a, a place of hurt or, uh, or, or, or damage and it's just par for the course I think and also I'm thinking about the fact that you guys have to balance the creative process writing songs producing them selling them mm. touring doing gigs and then dealing with all the other things that are, go hand in hand with having a band on the road like venues and other people that you have to employ and stuff like that there I'm, I'm just comparing it to running the business here yeah There's a lot of balls in the air I think it makes you have to have a bit of a thick skin definitely yeah slight tinge of madness yeah it's definitely the music business is multifaceted and now with this generation of social media and having to sell yourself and sell your brand through social media that's another variable on the side where you gotta be thinking about that shit on a daily basis or what can we put up content wise that's gonna keep our fans engaged and not forgetting about us and a lot of that comes with that's the pressure to sell tickets as well which is how we make a living and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way you know it's just part of being in the music industry nowadays is we've got to do we've learned as well that you can't get complacent in terms of like expecting booking agents to do everything or expecting your manager to do everything got to keep an eye on all those all those uh, irons in the fire if you wanted to go on, on the trajectory that you wanted to go on uh, there ain't no shortcuts like, you like I wouldn't change the way that things are here for me either but I also know that I'm on the edge of like it's not like a, being self-employed is not a stable thing like yeah. you're not going to get your whatever a thousand euro into your bank account every week regardless of what, whether you do a shit job or not like yeah, or a good job I can relate to that. Uh, so I think I mean it gives you some good characteristics when you have to grit your teeth and get on with it and I can see that in you guys you've no choice like do you not really you know and on one hand you get this freedom and you're very independent but on the other hand then there's no you don't know where you're going to be in six months time as you said you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from and I think it just works for certain people you strike me as a very independent guy a kind of a free thinker and a free soul and, and in that sense I'd say this venture suits you perfectly like but I often have those days where I'm going, Jesus Christ, give me a fucking office job. <laughs> <laughs> For five seconds. Yeah, and if it's not, like, if it's not the band that's making me feel like that, it's, it's travel company stressing me out. It's too much work or it's not making, doesn't feel like it's making progress or you could be losing money and it's just, again, it's just part of it. Like, it's part of the journey, isn't it? Yeah. I always find that the progress you're making, you rarely see it while it's happening yeah. it's only when you turn around and look back mm. a year later or like a period of time later on you're like whoa that's yeah. a big difference there that's what I started using I got into meditation about two years ago and like a certain part of my meditation every day if I do it every day I try to is being uh, focusing on the things that I'm grateful which is usually stuff that I'm grateful for a lot of things like relationships and friendships and my health but I'm also grateful for the things that we've been able to achieve in the band and getting to travel things of a cheese with a travel company and I think it's important to spend those couple of minutes a day focusing on that stuff because it compounds that idea in your head then 
and it's easier to to see to look back and appreciate that journey and see god we did we've gotten a lot out of this haven't we and um like i had a mate of mine owen cochran who i remember him saying that to me early days were like a lot of like the earlier days for us in the band where i was definitely focusing on the things that we hadn't achieved and I went for coffee with Owen Coughlin and he's, he's this musician from Limerick who'd kind of been through it all the back and I was telling him like yeah we just need to demo these two songs uh, and then we're going to send them to this label and then if they like them then it's going to be this and then it could be that and then it might be this if we do this and blah 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 and it was always these, these kind of outcome based goals and like the truth is that's never going to stop like there's always going to be something that you haven't done yet that you should be blah 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 and he picked up on this straight away that this young fella is lost in this journey of what's next and we're nearly and then and he just goes to me man you're fucking going off to Australia with the lads next week travelling the world and playing music like don't forget now that you got to appreciate that and enjoy every minute of it and and he was dead right and it it left an impression on me because he stopped me in my tracks and he spotted it and you have to I have to be my own, uh, <laughs> I have to police myself for that stuff every now and again, or it's important to have those moments where you go, yeah, that is cool. Give yourself a pat on the back for that. Did the meditation start as a way for you to start looking after your own mental health as such, like you were saying, kind of policing yourself a little bit? Yeah, it did. Um, I think I was just reading a lot about it in the last two years. And I actually, where I, I got sick for a year, I got like glandular fever that's what they diagnosed to that but I had chronic fatigue syndrome for 12 months it was a fucking nightmare I was tired all the time and I got, a, I got into just looking after myself from, from then on like looking at different diets and things that might suit me better and I was always healthy enough but I was reading up a lot about meditation at that time when I was sick and I, I what, one thing that appealed uh, to me about it was that like it's been proven to help even things as simple as your concentration and your focus which like I remember I felt like I'd been in college for years and I'd been in school before that where you're being generally it's demanding enough on you mentally every day where you're being forced to concentrate and focus and that's good like it's good for the brain but then in a band you don't always have that we could have time off where you don't have to do anything for two or three weeks at a time and uh I was finding like I need something to challenge me uh, mentally a little bit more. So I, I think that was one of the main reasons why I got into meditation. But then once you do it, you just notice how good you feel almost straight away where it's like everything stops. And in I don't know, these days now where you've got phones ticking all, all, all around the clock and you're running businesses and stuff, you don't get many of those windows. So I good for me if I get up in the morning, I make a coffee and I go and I have my 10 minutes where I sit and I listen to things. Do you have an app or something that you use? I used to use Headspace, but now I just sit. Yeah. And uh, it's great. Do you meditate? Yeah, I started doing You know, actually, I've done it before, kind of in and out for periods of time. I did Headspace for a little while. Yeah. But um, my brother Carver, he's done it for nearly 500 days in a row. Has he? He started on New Year's Day, like not this New Year's gone, but the one before that. And he's, every single day he's done Headspace and saying... That's why you were so zen, Carver. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> then... Uh, we were at Body and Soul. They had on one of the days sort of a summer solstice meditation and we went to that and it was so good. So I just said to myself, that's going to be the kickstart to yeah. get it going on a regular basis. So I downloaded an app called 10% Happier and I've been doing that ever since, but feeling a good difference. Yeah. 
I go through those periods as well where I get out of a routine. It's usually with routine for me that helps having that thing where you know I just got to get up in the morning. I got to do this now first thing, um, and I fall out of it. Like, but I think I, I heard or I read somewhere I can't remember that that most of the the, the benefit occurs when. So your mind wanders when you're meditating, which it will. It's always going to wander. And then it's where you steer it back to that place where you focus on not focusing, basically. And that's where the benefit occurs when you can just just steer it back to where you're meant to be. Because I think you can apply that to real life then very easily where you're getting stressed about something or you're getting anxious and you can just steer yourself back into uh, the right lane and go hang on this is actually this is fine I can deal with this as opposed to running down the road with it and <laughs> imagining these crazy fights or scenarios in your head and before you know it your heart is beating faster and you know that's the, that's the typical mechanism for most people I think what I've noticed is it helps me catch when I'm starting to build up stress or build up anxiety and catch it sooner yeah and then just sort of do something to try and address it like I noticed a few months ago I was just getting up in the morning and like, it was like a light switch just switched on from the very second I wake, opened my eyes, it was like switched on. I was like, right, you have to get up, get going, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Getting really busy very early in the day. And I just yeah. felt like that was kind of taking its toll. So that, I think that's why, why I started wanting to do it. But it's an important, such an important thing yeah, for man. just mental health in general and I, not letting things accumulate like that. I totally agree. And us sitting there having this conversation is really good. Like, and it's, it's indicative of, of a change I think that's happening where we're becoming a little bit more aware of that stuff. Um, Do you know one of the best things I've seen recently that's been put out there is um, the video that the Rover Vandas did, Sonny? Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah, man, that was, a, that was a ballsy one. And it's shit that needs to be said, you know. And I, I really like some of the lyrics in that song where they're like, he wasn't this or that. And I think the, the point they're trying to get across, he wasn't poor. He wasn't. Yeah. Nothing. You don't have to be, have yeah. something really bad happen to you this to have, uh, to, to need to like look after your mental health. Yeah. Essentially. And it's such a brave statement that song. And it's a conversation that, that just needs to be had. It's a huge problem. And Limerick, Limerick has, um, nearly the highest per capita, uh, rates of suicide in Europe I think it's crazy and we haven't quite figured out what it is um, it's a lot of young males young working class or young middle class and working class males most of whom have had they're educated or they've had a, a decent upbringing um, but they're depressed they're depressed to the point that they want to end their lives and that's that's a horrible reality and I don't know what the answer is, but talking about it is definitely bringing it out. It's destigmatizing it. It's bringing it out in the open, I think. I think there's a lot to be said for getting things out in the open. We were just talking about it earlier, but there are other things that are getting brushed under the carpet by and large. I think we have the mental health crisis, especially amongst young men. And the fact that young men don't really talk about it yeah. together that yeah. much. Yeah. I think that's a big thing. Um, the, like, I mean, it's related to Limerick, but that young fellow, Luke O'Brien, who died last year and his inquest came out that there was the anabolic steroids that contributed to his death. Was that he a soccer player or something? He was like GA and I think he played GA and maybe rugby and soccer as well. He was like a real, real good sportsman. I, was only I didn't hear that the inquest had come up. Only a couple yeah. of days ago. He was only 18. But Fucking I think that's another thing that because of the prevalence of the internet in terms of availability and information about anabolic steroids, it's something that's not going to go away anymore. 
same as a mental health crisis it's not going to disappear like so he bought steroids on, online did he I don't know the ends and the outs of it but I know like by and large that anabolic steroids are widely available now compared to see when I worked in Limerick in UL mm. like you could tell on count on one hand the people that were on steroids a couple of bodybuilders a couple of rugby players and that was it and now it's become so pervasive that it, what it's in all sports you see, I don't yeah. even think it's through with sports I think it's more to do with aesthetics and okay, the fact that yeah, uh, like social media yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's Instagram Facebook and all putting so much pressure on individuals and then it's kind of a cycle because then you get the pressure from your peers as well and I mean you can order any kind of drugs you want on the internet these days this is the, the iceberg man well Five years down the road, that is going to be rife. It's same with recreational drugs, like it is. Like yeah. the, the conversation needs to happen. It's. I would say, I don't know what you think, but it's probably easier for someone who's under eighteen to get. I'm not saying don't don't do this. I'm not promoting to do it, but I'm just saying it's probably in some instances easier to get drugs online than it is to go and get alcohol. Uh, I don't doubt it. Yeah, in, in the sense that. A 16-year-old can't walk into a shop in Ireland and, and, and buy a bottle of vodka. He can go online and order drugs to his house without any kind of accreditation or, or ID needed. Uh, let's talk about the steroid thing first, and then we can we can get to recreation yeah. drugs. But like, what do you think is the answer there? It's well, I think that there's a, I think there's you could probably break anabolic steroid use down to three main groups. There's the people who are bodybuilders. Mm. Adult bodybuilders, and that's a part of their culture. And that's uh, been going on for a couple of decades. That's right? gone on, it's part of their culture. And if, in fairness to them, they kind of know what they're doing. Exactly, yeah. so that's, I think that's a separate issue. Just leave that to one side. There's the steroid use for sports sports performance. Um, that probably goes across all levels, but I think that's a separate issue as well. In that, yeah. Especially at the highest level, if you're playing prof- if you're a professional athlete, and you're taking steroids, there's a good chance that you're getting it under medical supervision. Mm -hmm. So that's a separate issue as well. I think the main problem, the problem at the minute that's current is anabolic steroid abuse by young people who are doing it for the purpose of looking good. I think that's prevalent now. Yeah. It's not what it it didn't used to be a thing before, I don't think. And I would say that again, a big thing that we need to start doing is talking about it. It needs to be talked about in cl- sports clubs, schools, um, schools especially mm-hmm. at home. Um, I think that we need to start raising up to the fact that you don't have to go to a street corner in some dodgy part of town to speak to some fella you don't know and get a wee flipping bag off him under the yeah. And like, whereas you did have to do that up to ten years ago. Yeah, you can just sit sit in your bedroom, order it, get it delivered to your door. Yeah, and I think that I mean. This is, isn't going to be really popular with, with a lot of people, but people are going to have to start educating young people about how to take steroids properly. I don't I don't know, I'm not, and that's not my area of expertise, and I wouldn't encourage someone to go and do it. But if they're going to do it anyway, then there has to be some sort of place they can get yeah. the information to do it somewhat safely. Yeah, That's better than doing it haphazardly. And, so we've and we've seen then, this play out with recreational drugs and all manners of prohibition where... Prohibition doesn't work anyways for starters, but like even in uh, Portugal is a good example where they, they decriminalized drugs to deal with a massive heroin problem. And they started treating heroin like it was a sickness instead of a crime. And they opened injection clinics. And firstly, they halved their heroin uh, 
their 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 number of heroin users in Portugal in the last few years. And secondly, they were just able to educate people about how to administer these drugs. If you take that choice, we're going to educate you and tell you why it's bad, but we can also educate and tell you how you do it without overdosing and killing yourself. And I think that needs to be part of the discourse with the steroid thing. I don't know. What, like, what do you think of the idea of decriminalizing it? Definitely demonizing it is a bad idea, I think, in the sense that, not demon, maybe demonizing it, maybe that's a good idea. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, making people... Forcing people to do it in secret, mm. I think, is a bad idea if it's going to happen. Although, I think that you look at it, is it a, is the steroid abuse a drug problem or is it part of the mental health crisis that we're experiencing? Because if you look behind the surface, what have you got? Generally, young males, as young as 16, 16, 17, 18, 19, yeah. where the testosterone levels they have natural production of testosterone is through the roof anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't even, I don't think it makes, it doesn't make physiological sense to take, mm-hmm. uh, drugs to improve your testosterone uh, production at that young age anyway. However, what you have got is a lot of young males who feel inadequate, who've got negative thoughts about their own body image, Mm -hmm. who've probably got issues with self-confidence or who feel the need to look a certain way so that they can live up to what they feel is sort of being expected of them. I think that's the problem. And with the social media isn't the be all and end all of of the of the the problem either but i think that we need to start looking at young males mental health and finding ways to give them uh an outlet of expression that builds them up mm-hmm. builds their confidence may, like, uh, this uh, kind of like i guess it's a little bit of kind of a a hot take or something like that there but i think that uh getting people involved in creative outlets has a lot to do with, uh, is has a lot to offer the problem yeah. as well. Um, getting people involved in sport that's sort of a creative outlet in itself. Yeah. I think that'll help. Um, books that builds your self confidence. Um, but then I think that by and large we need to go back and realize that the young people are the future of the country really, yeah. and they need to have a sense of self worth that gives them the confidence not to feel the need to go off yeah. and take a shortcut to looking really strong. And from my personal experience like I grew up in an education system where kids were validated on two things like your ability to to get good results in school or to be good at sport and I wasn't good at either of those things growing up so I had a very poor self-esteem and I think what what you're saying there creative outlets I really agree that I think that's the answer is having it multifaceted so the kids can find their bra for me I didn't find music till I was 15 and that was such a, an, an enormous lease of life now I did find a love of sport but I had to work at that really hard but I, I music kind of found me but the way that music was presented to me and taught to me as a child was backward like it wasn't it was regimented and it was based on notation and theory and that's not a way to nurture a love or creativity in a child and there's a lack of that type of a thing where kids don't have I don't think they have enough options. I certainly didn't. Or like I just grew up thinking I was crap at everything because I hadn't been introduced to the right um the right approaches, the right approaches to sport and the right approaches to, to art, like music. And that's I fell through the cracks. And I think that's still that's those patterns still seem to be repeating themselves. Looking back as far as like two thousand and eight when the financial crisis, or not when the shit hit the fan back then. Mm. The arts were one of the main areas that suffered yeah. in terms of funding and stuff. And I think that that shows that 
at a governmental governmental level that in this country we fundamentally undervalue the arts and yeah. what they can contribute to society. And it's something I think about all the time. Like why, if you were going up in the sit into the dial and argue with the Taoiseach about why the arts are so important, what would you say? And I think that its contribution to building self-confidence, having a method of expression and giving communities an outlet for the things that they're feeling is one of the main sort of values of the arts. And if you cut that back, then what you're doing is cutting out things that aren't black and white. You're just left with sort of like binary, like good at sport, good at results. Reason and logic. And that's, there's a lot more to life than that. There's got to be that that that, that grey artistic flaky area in between that's very important to everyone. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a complicated issue. It's hard Definitely. to, and we live in. It's no coincidence why, like when we talk about suicide and this mental health thing, it's affecting uh, more males than anything else. And Ireland is a very like hyper masculine society. And I don't think that's helping anyone. Like that's one of the things that I really wanted to. I'm, I'm not like plugging the gym running here. I'm just want to. It's one of the main contributors to the fact that the way the gym is now yeah. is that I felt like it can't just be about coming and lifting weights. That's why we have a library and that's why we do movie nights or book club or yeah. come together to eat food together. Is other elements of health, overall health, physical health, and mental health, but there are other elements of health that are kind of. The poor relation, really, As when we think about it. It's superficial. It's either weights for vanity or with a lot of guys, it's weights for putting my masculinity out there and feathering my ego and this fragile idea of like your masculinity is determined by how strong you are or how how manly you are in quotations. And it's it's toxic. I don't think it's good. And it's directly reflected in the fact that our men are going to kill themselves. Like reading books doesn't fit into that narrative, really. Yeah. But I think that should be. It's something we need to bring in. Yeah. Like, and all these conversations are, are two guys like us, you know, what are we, 30, 31, talking about meditation and uh, putting your emotional well-being into your songs. And, uh, you know, that's the type of conversation that you wouldn't have seen happen in 10 or 15 no. years ago. But then I think it's, it's important in the sense that if someone listens to this and they're like, right, next time I see my mate, uh, maybe I'll, have a, I'll try and talk about this for them. Yeah. And then maybe someone will try and talk about it and could be awkward. <laughs> Prepare for awkwardness. Not to say that this is awkward, but... Just ask them about feeling, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even when... like. I couldn't have talked like this openly when I was 22 or 23. Be a lot more guarded and... Part of that just comes with age and not giving you give less of a shit, but it's also just seeing a lot of these conversations taking place around me as well. It just helps you be a little bit more open, I think. Well, you said something earlier about when you're in a creative, when you're doing something creative, you have to open yourself up to the emotions as well. And that's probably part of it as well. You know, if you have emotions that are negative or they're sort of like going to make you start crying, like it's not natural to want to talk about them with your mates really like if you're a young fella and yeah I know not saying not natural but it, you can oh no totally so I know so many people musicians that find it easier to express themselves through a piece of music than actually say what's what's bothering them and that's that's not a bad thing like as long as they're expressing it through some kind of a medium mm. it's healthy um, and I've 
yeah, I've learned to get better at doing that through music. And I've, I've learned as well that you get better music when it's, when it's honest and it's something that you feel emotional about, whether it's a, a good emotion or a bad emotion, you get better results and it resonates with people in a way um, that's much more authentic as opposed to going into a room and trying to write with this kind of formulated approach of just like two people falling in love or something. You're not, there's no connection between you and the narrative. So it doesn't, doesn't come across as an honest expression. That's exactly the same thing I was talking to you about earlier with the, the gym, when the gym started in the first two years, I was trying to play by the rule book that I was given essentially yeah. and say like, this is how it's supposed to be done. This is how the marketing should look. This is how the training should look. Yeah. And then after two years of it, found myself up to my elbows and shit. And I was just thinking, right, this is, I don't mind having the pressure on, but I'm not even doing something that I love doing yeah. at the minute. So it's time to start fresh, do it the way that I feel like it's going to make me the happiest or give me the sort of like, that is an output of what I'm feeling like. It's such this, is it. this, like this gym, this space is like a, it's such an honest reflection of your personality and the things that you're about. And that's, so you can feel at home and you walk in here every day and you can always stand by this. And as opposed to some generic gym that is like, you know, they're littered up and down the country that you just have no personal connection with. And there's something really, I don't know, authentic and very unique about this place for that reason. It's probably the same with, with musical. Yeah. If you're making something that you don't believe in. Yeah. And well, what I was going to say there is like, so you had your gym that didn't work, but like, I bet you that was such an important step in your process this wouldn't have happened exactly. unless there was that low point yeah and I've had that with songs that like I don't like calling them shit songs but they're <laughs> <laughs> they're definitely songs that didn't deliver I put it that way and when I reflect back on those songs it's because yeah there was a lack of a connection between what I was feeling and you're almost writing music like an algorithm where you're being too objective about it and you're going, okay, it needs to do this, needs to do this, needs to tick this box and tick this box. And you can do a little bit of that, but that shouldn't be the dictating kind of force. And I, I used to write like that early days. And then you see that the results don't really deliver early. You've no connection to them. When they when it's finished, then it's like, I don't even feel like I fucking wrote this. <laughs> and I've definitely learned from those ones. So they're, the bad songs are more important than the good ones in many ways. You what you know? mentioned there about trying to write from an algorithm in the sense that you are you have a formula, you're trying to just fit the song into that formula. Yeah. But then that's in contrast, like the very word creativity implies that you're creating something that didn't exist before. Yeah. If you're sticking in an algorithm, it means it already did exist. Because exactly. you have the algorithm. Yeah, it has a formula. Now, there are rules like in writing songs as much as we like to say that no art doesn't have any rules and some it can't have rules if, if you if you want it not to have rules it cannot have rules but generally speaking it does like i generally write verses and then a chorus and they're like patterns maybe a rule is a bit restrictive but like there's patterns that you kind of need to adhere to if you want people to be able to take it in and uh so that can limit you at times and make it challenging because you're Go on. I was going to say, like, is that not a, an essential part of creating something? You have to have limits that you work, like self-imposed limits, and you say, 
I'm just thinking if someone walks in to the gym here and they have a medical condition, mm-hmm. I'm saying I'm going to make a program for this person who has this medical condition and this range of mo- movement yeah. and these are the goals and then you work within those constraints and so come up with something unbelievable. Yeah. Whereas if you have like unlimited... Total freedom. Unlimited freedom. Yeah, that's like wall, a little bit of this, a little bit of that everywhere. Yeah. Is that... The limits are yeah, important that's, in that sense? that's a good point. Um, it is... it For that very reason, it's very important to have limits. But I think I found recently where when you're you're writing and you're trying to say something that's when you become aware of these limits where like i look at rappers and poets and see the freedom they have to say all of this shit and then because i'm a singer songwriter i'm adhering to melody and some form of structure and it can make it a little bit harder and i suppose that's the art of of that craft of being able to get your whole point across through these limits. That's a mastery of that. Mm. And, uh, I often see it like in my earlier songs, the one that I said, that were a bit shit. <laughs> trying to say too much, like these, like too much lyrics and blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't, the human brain doesn't pick it up. Then the listener can't process it. It's too much information. So I've then, I'm at a process now where I'm putting it back a little bit and making it fit these, limits as we call them but say like if you look at you mentioned poetry if you look at a haiku that has limits and the art is fitting the poem into the limits in in through a rhythm structure and yeah it definitely does and lyrics are pretty no song lyrics and melody are the first cousin of poetry i think what what made this apparent to me was like i had i went through a breakup a couple of months ago and i didn't write anything for a while and then i sat down at the piano one day to kind of I had been taking notes on my phone of things that had happened that I would come up like just thoughts that I had about this whole situation and I'd write them down and then after a few weeks I said I might try and make these into an expression about that whole situation so I wrote the music first which was just something that felt like it uh, reflected the emotion of that whole experience and that was easy it was literally two chords on the piano and then I sat down to try and piece these notes in my phone into lyrics and I had so much shit to say and that's when you realise then that like god there are li- limits to this where you decide on a, a verse melody so whatever it is so that's the verses are going to loosely work to that rhythm so and that melody but then you got to make these words fit into that it's a real fucking brain scrambler like it's it's a it's a puzzle and you've got to make all these pieces fit and then I got there in the end. I got to what I felt was an honest reflection of the whole story. And it wasn't, I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. It was just, you know, when something has to end and, and uh, the lyrics summed it up and, and the music felt apt as well. But there was a lot of stuff that I just couldn't fit in there. And I was going, Jesus, I love the way rappers can just be blah, 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 blah. They can fucking hammer it all out there. Like your brother, kneecap. They have so much freedom and versatility. Now, I know if they were here, they'd probably say, hey, we have more limits than you think. But they've um, they have a huge amount of kind of power in that they can be so direct in what they want to say. And that's why I'm glad now I made that segue because I wanted to talk about kneecap yeah. as well. But <laughs> that, just before you go into that, I think that's something that applies across things that are creative in the sense, like you imagine a chef yeah. who's making it wants to create a dish. They don't start with the possibility of putting every single ingredient on the yeah, world on yeah, the dish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a like, great say, parallel. The, the best things, they, like if you look at they're like, right, these four ingredients max, you have to make something. Yeah. And then you take 30 chefs and they're all making 
a dish from the same four ingredients. Yeah. Be 30 different dishes and one of them is going to be absolutely delicious. I really like, because I've had this conversation with a few people in the last few weeks using that song as an example and I like the way you've applied the same template to stuff like cooking and running a business as well because it is the same and you've made me realise now that those limits are it's part of the the artwork, isn't it? It's just that you have those. This is what you've got to work with and just fucking do it. <laughs> and don't be envy, envy rappers for being able to do it. <laughs> you starting a beef with me, Kim? <laughs> That's what's happening here. I wouldn't dream of it. <laughs> I couldn't have a beef with Melody. That would be the shittest rap beef of all time. I'd have to <laughs> sing at them, sing my insults at them. <laughs> yeah, man, those boys are outstanding. So I, uh, we were up at Body and Soul like three weeks ago and I saw an ECAP for the first time. And yeah, it's just brilliant what they've got going on. It's so honest. And I, re- I think I said to your brother afterwards, I said, you know, life, art reflects life. And I feel like what you did there, their set that night, like really reflected everything that you grew up with and the, the good stuff and the shit that you had to deal with. And, and in a very honest way, it wasn't contrived and it was authentic and, and even I'm not much of a Gwail Gore, so I don't understand half of what they're saying. But it's still energy, and you you get it, you get the emotion, and you get the intent behind it, and that's it transcends the language almost. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like it is sort of an exaggerated form of reality when they the way they put the lyrics out there. Is it? I think in a sense they would probably say that themselves in the sense that like they're there's artistic licensor yeah put it right i'm not speaking on behalf of them of course but i think that's the way they would put it but it's it is it's after taking off and it's really reflective of how the mentality of people from the area that we came from is, is kind of changing the young people like when when, when i was say the same age as nisha 24 or whatever we we would never have dreamed about being able to do something like that really it's a different time is it having the freedom to say those things and um it's hard to say I mean, I really feel like they're after doing something that that has never been done before, and they're after giving sort of like a voice to people who are around about the same age as them and up same age as me, even yeah. as well. Like, but yeah. the, a voice that wasn't there before. It's interesting. We we, we went to we we hadn't been a band for very long at this stage, and we, we were working with this artist development label who were trying to get us into writing sessions, and they were trying to kind of. Uh, mentor us a little bit and they brought us to Nashville on this writing session and we got to work with some really cool people and producers and stuff and one of the things they kept telling us was that your music needs to be uh, this song or whatever it is this single is so your definitive song needs to be a statement that represents just who you are as people and what you stand for and people need to get an idea of where you came from and who you are whether it's directly or indirectly from here in this music. And it, that sounds kind of fluffy, you know, and I don't know if at the time if I ever really understood it, but I think Kneecap are a fucking great example of that, where it's really, I get a sense of everything that went on behind the scenes there, and I just get an idea of what they're about from looking at those songs. And it's funny because I don't even understand half of the shit they're saying. I'll tell you a funny story. I was up in Belfast a few weeks ago, and we were sitting outside Madden's, which would be a well-known pub, um, in West Belfast and or just in the city centre and it was kind of after closing time we were just sitting outside finishing our drinks and this old fellow walked past and goes any any of you's got a light lads and he had a wee rollie and one of the lads gave him a light 
and someone else said just messing. He goes, "Is that a wee joint you have there?" And he goes, "A, a joint." We used to kneecap people who had joints, who were smoking joints. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think that just reflects the, the, the gravity of the change that yeah. the North has gone through or Belfast has gone through from um, even just like talking about marijuana. Like used to be up there with heroin in terms of severe, yeah. how severe people viewed that um, space as a substance. Decades. Yeah, it's incredible. And I, I love that you all talk well. Yeah. That's Mad to me. I don't know any Wagors. I'm from Limerick City, and I spoke Irish up until the leaving starts so up until I was 17. And so you, Irish is your first language, isn't it? I, I think I learned English when I was about five. I love it. I've noticed this with Carver a lot. Your brother, he says some some things to me sometimes that are weird, as in sentences, and I'd be like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" But I can't <laughs> remember what it was he said one time, and I was like, "I have no idea what you're trying to say to me," and I realized it's because he translates from Irish into English and that to me is like it's so exotic exotic's a weird word because it's Irish it's not exotic at all it's it's uh, endogenous but it, it, it's brilliant and it's sad that I don't see more of that but it's a beautiful thing to see that living and breathing we were up at Body and Soul and I was listening to you all chattering away and it's Belfast Irish as well so it's unintelligible to me and then Shane Hennessy the musician that we know came up and we, it's like none of you even I don't know if he knew you were Gwail Gores, but you were all fucking going on in Irish. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't, I'd love to have been able to jump in, but I don't. I've only Coupla Fuckle, and I, I loved Irish in school. Actually, so you'd have a different outlook on this now because you're, Irish is your first language, but like my biggest issue was the way it was taught to us in school in that it was taught through poetry and like short stories. And I was remedial at Irish. Until my my parents forced me to go to Irish college when I was 13 or 14. And I got a little bit better at that. I got just the hang of like the verbs and shit. Something as simple as that. And I it actually developed a bit of a, a, a grow for the language. And then for my leaving search, my dad sent me to this guy that he knew called Tim Fine. who was a retired uh, school principal living in Limerick. And he was a really old man. He was the sweetest, nicest man. I used to go into him on a Monday evening and we would just talk Irish for an hour. And we talk about music, and he would. I remember he he'd slag the shit out of me in Irish for being shit at Irish, because I come from an all boys family. I responded well to that to someone giving me shit over something. Like one time he asked me, "Oh, did you which I was Kenish too," and I told him I was seventeen feet tall, and he just goes, "Oh, Carcalor," and just slagged the shit out of me about being illiterate for Irish. But just for those, I did that for like six months in the leaving cert, and I ended up getting. A pretty good grade in honours Irish, which I before that had no business in doing. And that was just, he died shortly after that. And he was the nicest man. And I've really romantic, not romantic, that's probably weird to describe it, but <laughs> romantic memories of the Irish language as a result of those nights and those conversations that I had with him. And what I'm getting at, I suppose, is that there's just a lack of that in the way that we're taught Irish. The context is definitely very important. It's a very important thing for us in the context in which we learned Irish. And yeah. actually something I only found out uh, last week was that whenever me and Carbra were christened at the same time, whenever I was about three years of age and he would have been just six months or something like that, Yeah. In there's a, a priest called Father Des Wilson who ran sort of a house, sort of like uh, a community house in Ballamurphy. And we were both christened in his house. And someone shared a clip of him on Facebook the other day. So I just shared it on my Facebook saying, oh, this is Des. And he, he's a great priest. He was... Like he still is, and uh, 
was very much involved in the Republican movement as well and spoke yeah. out on behalf of nationalist communities who were like, getting a very hard time at the at the hands of the British Army and the government as well throughout the whole conflict. So I, I asked my mum, I was like, how come we were we were christened at the same time in Des's house? And it's like, why was I not christened you know, like when I was born or when Carl wasn't christened when he was born? Okay. Is, it, is it just because I thought, is it because our grannies felt Right, you've had one unchristened child, and now you're not going to have a second one. So you may go up and get them kids christened. And she said, "No, actually, what happened was the registration office for births wouldn't provide a form bilingually or in Irish. Okay. So my mum wouldn't fill in the form in English. Right. So they said, so she wasn't entitled to any child support because we weren't registered as, as kids. They said the only way you're going to get the child support is if you get the kids christened." And she got us christened, and that's how it ended up. Like so, the con- that way, like, that's how we grew up. Was Irish was so sort of it was just they were trying to kill it, and and we were trying to keep it alive. Yeah. That, at that stage, obviously, it was my parents who were who yeah. were making the and efforts. Your dad gener- was kind of like a, a, a Gwil Gore journalist, wasn't he? My our, our our dad would be very much involved in the Irish language activism. Yeah. It, it's basically his whole life. Um, he was involved in setting up the Culterland on the Falls Road, which is a cultural centre. That's where our secondary school was. And actually that has a lot, how we went to school and how Irish was taught to us, or how we were taught through Irish in school, has got a lot to do with the strength of the Irish language movement in Belfast now. Now the Manskull, Farster, whenever I went to it, was started in 91, I think, and I went to it in 96. And at the time there would have only been 60-odd kids in it, but it was not recognised by the state. So we were going to protest and down to the Board of Education all the time. There was people from America and Africa and coming to the school, they sort of lend their support to us, yeah. give us show, sort of show, our support, show their support for our <coughs> cause. And then we got the recognition. But a lot of the teachers in the school, I, I remember one day our history teacher was telling us a story about a guy who was arrested and put in jail without trial and myself and one other person in the class copped on that he was talking about himself this guy spent 14 years in jail he was our teacher and a lot of the teachers quite a few of the teachers had spent time in jail for the because of their involvement in the republican movement and when you're learning when you're getting your education in that context it's yeah. different from having poetry forced down your throat yeah you, you you can see firsthand the importance of this identity that we have and 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 why it's important to keep that alive yeah definitely um Whereas we were so far removed from that. Like, I remember being sent home at the age of like 10. I'll never forget this because it's etched into my brain and, and the fucking stress it caused me. But there was this short story that we were given to learn called Unshan Cashlon. It was like a poet, a, a kind of a rhyming short story. And we had to learn like two verses of it off by heart. I probably couldn't do that now in a night. Like, I'm shit at learning lyrics. Takes me ages, and we were sent home to do this like at the age of nine or ten. And I remember like bawling, crying, sitting at the table. I couldn't do this. I was telling my mother that my teacher's going to kill me tomorrow because he's going to stand me up at the top of the class, and I'm going to have to recite this, and I don't know it. And that was done with the vision of teaching us how to speak Irish. <laughs> and it just seems counterintuitive. Like that's not how you learn. I don't think that's how you learn a language. If there's a crossover there with what we were talking about earlier in terms of having. Um creative outlets and being involved in the arts and the yeah. importance that has for our health as individuals and as a society. I think the language of the land and our, our Irish language has 
a similar contribution to make yeah to the to like our the future of our, our health and stuff like that yeah absolutely. i'm not sure how to articulate that uh, maybe that sounds mad when i'm saying it out loud but i think that down deep down under there is some connection there with because like after all like you don't have to go far you don't have to go that far back to the time when Irish was physically beaten out of kids in school mm. and people were were killed because they would wouldn't didn't want to speak stop speaking Irish yeah. or they wouldn't speak English that's not that far far ago and when you look at the um slavery for us as an example there <clears throat> they, they, it's a recognized thing that there's intergenerational trauma there yeah. in terms of how slaves were treated and how that's passed on to the next generation and I'm sure there must be something there when it comes to the Irish language and the Irish culture because it was forced down so so brutally but not so long ago there's a thing called that Celtic melancholy I remember watching an interview with Anthony Hopkins where he was basically saying I'm a bit of a cranky fucker he was like I'm not I don't suffer from depression some days I just don't want to be around people and he said I think it's it's this sense of it's a thing called Celtic melancholy where we're just prone to a bit of sadness now and again <laughs> but like where does that come from is it passed down through generations of being beaten and abused and maybe it is who knows but actually Blind Boy had a good bit about that in his podcast recently about he was talking about the weather or something do you yeah yeah what was and that remind me again uh, I can't remember it now it I one of his more interesting hot takes yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who's to say that that stuff doesn't imprint on your genetics or your instincts um if if it doesn't do it genetically, it probably does it culturally. Where we have the Irish sometimes could have like a low self esteem, maybe from growing up, like having been fucking beaten and abused. And if a it good example, by church, it was by another country. You know, a good example is if you go to certain Gaeltacht areas uh, that have been like speaking Irish was demonized so much that it seemed like it was like only like. Dirty stinkers spoke Irish, and you weren't cultured, or you weren't educated, or yeah. you weren't intelligent, or didn't have much worth if you only spoke Irish and you didn't speak English. Yeah. It was certain areas in Galway. That's that's definitely the case, and that I think that you can see that still where still some people yeah. who can speak Irish perfectly, who grew up with Irish, just refuse because they feel like I don't know, maybe they don't even recognise it, but yeah. I think it's because of that because for generations it's just have a low self-esteem it was it was demonized it was like you were made, made out like you were worthless if you were only speaking irish yeah it's fucking crazy man do you um do you always speak irish to your family now but I, I couldn't speak english. it would feel so weird would i it, couldn't yeah. do it i would first of all feel weird because i've never done it but i would also i mean i wouldn't do it but if for some reason i was doing it i would feel i would get guilty Right, <laughs> if you speak it, oh, me and Coitus Berla. I mean, if you ha- if you speak Irish, if you can speak Irish and someone else can speak Irish, then I feel like you have a sense of duty to keep it going and speak it. Yeah. But now it's different with my family. I just have never spoken English to my family, so it's very strange. I don't know. I'm sure anyone who can speak more than one language, whatever language you start speaking to someone in, that you build a relationship within. That's generally the language that you use going forward. Yeah, you just slip into that that gear or whatever it is. Um. yeah that's lovely man you must be quite do you feel a sense of pride like when you're walking around to the festival in Body Solo and you're all chatting away in Guelga it must come with that a sense of pride do you know I felt it on the tube in London really me and Cara Venetia were over there and Liam Oog as well who is also a kneecap we were yeah. over there on the tube speaking Irish and you definitely get a sense of 
now people know that we're we're different. <laughs> the English <laughs> party thinks fucking Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> but then that's the way it would have been whenever people were leaving Ireland, going to America or England. Yeah. They they were different, like they were speaking Irish, speaking amongst themselves and you're expressing yourself in a way that's more natural, I think, if you're speaking your native language. You are the language that you're that you're most comfortable with. I think Irish will live on. I mean, the, the debate about how compulsory we want to have it in our education system—that's still going on. I was watching that on Live Line just last week, but it goes without saying. Irish will live on through art first and foremost, anyways. You know, through your Irish poets and guys like Kneecap, who are now are dragging it into the contemporary 2018 through rap of all things but they're doing it in a way that isn't it's not cringy it's honest and it seems it's just authentic yeah there's no filter there yeah that's it and you can see that that's what was resonating with people at the gig that night and yeah I can't wait to see what they come there were so many people there at that gig that not Gilgores and we were just standing outside of the, the, the tent and came in when they heard what was going on yeah um, I thought I thought they were going to shut it down. There's four extra <laughs> security guards up on the stage. Yeah, what was that song? Fuck the bouncers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Sorry. Wreck in the place. Where do we Where do we go from here? Um, I don't know. Jesus, not to say for myself. <laughs> go and do some training in the gym. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Won't let on because he's very modest, but the gym is, it's amazing and hats off to him and it's a fucking, it's a beautiful artistic expression of everything you're about. <laughs> it's, it's a really unique place to walk into. It's a lovely space and we're in the, the green room here as he called it. It's got books and DVDs and there's a guitar. Jim has got a real old school thing to it as well. There's no mirrors and fair fucking play, man. Let's go rip it up. Let's do it. Yeah. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you probably already know that the Rebel Matters podcast is a little side project that I have on the go on top of running the Ackley Personal Training Facility, which is located in Cork City Centre. So if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a few things that I'd really love you to do to help me out and to help me keep the show on the road. First of all, if you're listening on iTunes, leave us a five star rating and a wee review to let me know that you're listening and that you're enjoying the show. That really helps. Secondly, if you're in the market for some personal training or if you know someone who wants to start personal training, go to the Ackley website, which is www.aclai.ie and book a free consultation to come in and have a little chat about your goals and we'll put a proper plan together so that you can achieve them. And thirdly, I have to mention that we're coming up to our biggest event that we have ever organised to date in Ackley and that's the Gym Jam. It's a fundraising event to raise funds for the Irish wheelchair rugby team and coach Alan Deneen who works at Ackley. They're going to the World Championships down in Sydney, Australia this August. Have very little, basically no funding um, from official places to um, go down on this trip. So we've pulled together and we've got a massive lineup to come and play music from 6pm to 1am on 21st of July, Saturday. We've got Bon Voyage, Kneecap, Stevie G, Darren Kelly, County Vinyl, Keir Brady, Senior Barry, Lisa O and DJ Geronimo Flex are setting up in the gym. Tickets are €10. Euro. It's an over-18 event. You can buy tickets in Ackley at Soma Coffee Shop on Tucky Street or through Eventbrite if you just put in a Gym Jam in the Eventbrite that'll come up. Uh, so support us there. It's going to be a class event. There's loads of people who are after getting behind us in 
Cork and from further afield. So it's been really good, really good community vibes on the go there for such a good cause. So get behind the Jim Jam and share the Jim Jam event with your mates and get them on board as well. And hopefully I'll see you there. The music on the podcast is from a track called Cardinal Knowledge by the band Keila, who I've been following since I've been old enough to stand up. If you want to see their upcoming tour dates, go to their website, keila.ie, K-I-L-A.ie. Check them out on Spotify and YouTube to hear their tunes and also check them out on Facebook to see what they've been up to recently. I'm going to leave you with a little treat. I'm going to leave you with a new release from Kneecap called Bouncers. And you can hear Kneecap on Spotify and on YouTube and you'll hear them down in Ackley at the Gym Jam if you are in attendance on that night. So I'll leave you with Bouncers. Half eight pleasing that much of a tap No more mullet for your Mowgli bab Far urna If I go slan Lish and clap Nish bae dear Earth money Niggin too strap Len your Jasper Don't eat enough Just you make J Kilo coke So near my box Got gillig in your hook Duck me arms unlocked Myrtle nigger max dear Hard for octo punt Red Fast forward Swig of wine ala Sipping bug Stella Look how you lemon woman Go foils to my Bounce around the curn Yeah looks like a wild dark Jurek in my hula Not tonight mate I think you've had enough So hug my thorns And I the August Rish my Guarantee, Neil Falcho, Revna, Gardy. Nah, Akis, Jack and Toe, Gumper, and Mock, and fuck bouncers. Natori and I hint the slap. Tishé, 
if we smacked at self-police the knocked Show up flashing done, murder his italic act Only capture, fucking cheeky bastards Your dad's a disgrace and your life's a disaster Call will the Europe for Amal Ahan Rukasta Mar flesh mega lua, or get Jimmy mega gasta Bouncers, knees massing in a pace Bouncers, constellation SS Bouncers, knees shit shit in the cash No one's knocking me back, or get racking the sash Bouncers, knees massing in a pace Bouncers, constellation SS Bouncers, knees shit shit in the cash No one's knocking me back, or get racking the sash Bouncers, knees massing in a pace Bouncers, constellation SS Bouncers, knees shit shit in the cash No one's knocking me back, or get racking the sash Bouncers, knees massing in a pace Bouncers, constellation SS Bouncers, knees, shit, shit, and sick, shit, we're talking me back. I'll go back in the sash. Nah, lads, that's not fair. They're only doing their job, so are they are.